Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 5th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. As of February 1st, 133,000 people in Colorado have received both doses of the coronavirus vaccine. The positivity rate for the virus has dropped to just under 5% for the first time since early last fall. And Governor Polis announced this week that the first round of vaccines will expand to include restaurant workers and educators. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, clearly this is a fluid, uh, changing, evolving situation, but it sounds like if restaurant workers and educators are getting to at least version 1B.3, version whatever, uh, that seems like a good evolution. What do you think? Well, I think it's lucky that we celebrated Groundhog Day this week because here we are again on Friday filming right as Governor Polis is having another COVID-19 press conference. So we could be surprised and very outdated within seven hours. But the numbers do look good right now in Colorado compared to other parts of the country. Interestingly, although vaccinations are going better than they were, we're only about 23rd. We're tied for 23rd in the country for the percentage of people per capita who've been vaccinated. But Everything I've heard has been, it's been smoother. You're breaking the log jams. You're able to get online. Denver Health is starting to roll out vaccinations for people 65 and over and the other groups in 1B, which are the educators. And that includes child care workers. It's a, he's expanded the group there. So it's going to be tough to get that whole group in before we go to 1C. But right now it seems to be going smoothly. The numbers do look better. They're very optimistic. And that the the percentage rate is down. The number of outbreaks is just at 100 compared to 140 last week. Fewer outbreaks even in healthcare facilities. But we forget that the rest of the country is not necessarily doing as well as we are. We still have a lot of tourists coming to Colorado. People need to be vigilant. The mask mandate was just extended another month. So we're getting over the hump, but we've still got a way to go. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. From what we've seen, and I, I think any sort of local control thing like vaccine distribution is going to have evolution and changes. That have you? Uh, what do you think about how it's evolved? Is it going in the right direction? Well, com- compared to Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, California, we're we're outstanding. We're way behind Alaska and, and West Virginia. Um, it's good that to include education and restaurants in, in the next group because they've, they've been especially devastated uh, by the pandemic. But, you know, so far it's taken over a month to give the, vac- the, the full two, two-stage vaccine to just over 2% of the Colorado population. And the group that's now in, in 1B is a lot larger than 2% of the population. So it could take a quite a long time to get through them. And then everybody else who wants a vaccine, you know, it, it could be a, a, a very long time. The sad thing is there's, there's 10 million doses uh, sitting in a warehouse in Baltimore, but they haven't been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And so we've, we've got another uh, bottleneck there. You know, AstraZeneca, which is being used in Europe, it's, it's not as good as the U.S. vaccines. But uh, again, we could have more, more people get vaccinated sooner um, if the FDA would uh, remove its constriction on people having their own choice uh, about being able to take a vaccine. Joey Bunch, Senior Deputy Managing Editor at Colorado Politics, uh, leads up our, our Southern Gentleman remote uh, guest on CIO today. Joey, we go to you. Uh, I think across the, uh, across the board, we have people who really want to see schools open back up, uh, from, from parents to educators and everybody alike. I think everyone wants to get kids back into school. Do you think getting educators at this stage into the vaccine plan is going to help make that happen? 
you know, I hope so. But this has just become such a complicated ball of politics. You know, I don't know what to expect anymore. I, I thought I was only going to be in my basement for about two weeks, and I've been here 11 months. So what do I know? But, but yeah, I know what this feels like, and it feels like the beginning of the end. But, you know, but let's see. I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but, you know, what's happened to date has been less than ideal. You know, my, my, my colleague, Ernest Loning, has a cover story for Air Magazine this weekend, and he talked to the to the to Colorado's uh, delegation about what they hope to accomplish. And, and Senator Hickenlooper, former Governor Hickenlooper, said he said the big one that we need to do very soon is a COVID package that deals with the development, production, and distribution of vaccines. We're a year into this. this that's like building the barn while the while the wolves are eating the cows. I mean, blame who you want. But we've had damn near a year to come up with a plan. And it just feels like what Ronald Reagan said. You know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. You know, if the Biden administration wants to restore confidence, then they'll restore the nation's health. Fail at one, fail at both. Building the barn while the wolves are eating the cows. Joey, every single time you come up with some uh, some goal to share with the viewers, thank you for that. And rounding up the panel today, John Frank, a brand new member of Axios Denver, making its premiere in uh, Denver just later this month. John, thanks for joining us in the panel. Uh, as you look at the developments of the situation from Governor Polis's announcements to uh, the numbers so far, do you think we're going to see an opening up uh, to the level that we saw in late summer, early fall last year? It sure looks like Governor Pulse is trying to speed this thing along and get the economy open. That has been his priority from the start, uh, much to the chagrin of some public health officials who feel like he's going too fast. When it comes to vaccine distribution, I think the headline is more confusion or confusion reigns. I mean, adding the 65 an older crowd or the 60, 65 crowd, it's just kind of the latest instance of Governor Polis, you know, trying to push things through, either change the priority list midstream or, you know, advance it maybe too quickly. You, when you talk to people on the ground, confusion is mostly what you hear. I mean, that was evident in multiple Denver Post stories this week. First, Colorado's not done vaccinating people 70 and older or the other folks in the phase 1B for that matter. And so some of the people in this group are wondering whether they will get bypassed. And then second, Polis shifted what it meant to be an educator, uh, bumping college professors off the list of, of folks in this next phase. K through 12 educators are still there, but college professors aren't. You know, why this matters is the more the priority list changes, the more questions about how it was put together and whether it was based on lobbying behind the scenes or science. And so I think there's still a lot of questions and confusion here. Next Monday, the Denver City Council will consider the final ruling on an amendment to group living statutes. As it stands right now, it is illegal for more than two unrelated adults to live together. If approved, the updated rules will allow for up to five unrelated individuals to live in one household and allow residential care in more areas. The update will also prohibit halfway houses in the lowest intensity residential districts. David, from what you can see so far, are the new policies a good idea? Uh, half of them. The, what's been bad has been the secrecy of the Denver City Council has uh, gone about this. And in fact, one of the groups that's skeptical of all this actually had to sue under the Open Records Act to, to pry the, uh, the documents out from the, the city council. Having back in the 1960s, what's called RO zoning, which is like only one family in a house, period, was 
enacted to uh, with good intentions and it worked to prevent places like Park Hill from being busted up by people by realtors who would say oh blacks are moving in so whites you better sell out now for whatever price you can get while you can and then the realtors take a you know maybe one nice big house and split it into a bunch of apartments or bring in a, a lot of people and who don't necessarily take care of the place and you get this vicious cycle so RO zoning was great in the 60s to that helped stop that but in modern times, it, it just doesn't make sense with, with how people live. You know, you, you can't really justify saying if, if three friends from college want to rent a house and live together, why not? Or, you know, for that matter, if they're, they're a throuple. Uh, the putting the uh, homeless housing and group housing and ho- housing for convicted criminals in residential neighborhoods, I think is a potentially dangerous idea, and that should certainly be looked at more, and we should, they should get much more data from other uh, cities before they impose that on all the neighborhoods. Joey, most of the beginning of this year has been about the politics in the national side of things being dramatic, but it would be uh, hard for us to forget the fact that Denver City Council has had more than its fair share of drama in 2020. Do you think this policy uh, debate on Monday night will be uh, in, uh, a reason for more drama from the Denver City Council? Oh, absolutely. This is the powder keg. This is a political powder keg that I'm even surprised that they want to handle because you know, this, these are hard decisions with broad impacts. You know, no question, Denver has a full-blown affordable housing crisis, but does this really solve it? You know, we need to know the answer to that before we go forward, because the most common law I see get passed is the law of unintended consequences. You know, are we just cramming more people into overpriced apartments? You know, you're talking about people's rights and you're talking about people's lives. And one of the rights that we have is the right to park and the right to know who our neighbors are. You know, I, I you know, when I drive around on Denver streets, I don't see a lot of a lot of parking, you know. And as far as halfway houses go, you know, that's the other side of the coin. You know, are we just not through making these people pay yet and keeping them apart? And I got news for you. They're coming back to their communities eventually. And the more we keep them apart, the more resentful they're going to be. You know, as with the coronavirus response, Denver can't afford to get this wrong. John, it seems like the council is tackling a lot of issues within these uh, uh, policies. You have halfway houses, which brings into the whole idea of the criminal justice system. You have uh, multiple people in housing. So this is addressing housing issues, affordable housing issues, even homeless stuff. Uh, A lot to tackle here, uh, rife with possibility for uh, conflict. What do you see happening next Monday? Well, my colleague Elena Alvarez at Axios Denver, who knows the city best, tells me the bottom line is this amendment's going to pass. The city council has the votes, and in fact, probably a supermajority. But I think the broader context is important here. This reflects the deep divide about the city's continued growth. I mean, this proposal alone is three years in the making. So you know this is not the last salvo in this debate, and that there are many more to come. The question is where the council is going to draw the line on growth, and Based on this, I'm not sure we quite know yet. This decision, though, will send some pretty strong signals about the future and could be very interesting to watch. Patty, uh, you've been following uh, Denver politics for uh, a little while now. Uh, Do you think this is going to be a game changer event? Yes. it's Well, in some ways, no, because it's just going to be more crankiness. And we've seen that for a long time. We have been reporting about the communal households for 40 years because originally it was set up actually to uh, keep 
biracial couples apart. It was um, unmarried people were supposed to be kept apart. You had to be married. That in the 70s and 80s, they turned it to two um, unrelated people, just two. But there are plenty of households in Denver that are communal. Sometimes they're religious groups. Sometimes they're groups that are just affinity groups. Sometimes they're college friends, like Dave talked about. I don't know why in the three years they didn't sever that part of the discussion from the part of the discussion that deals with residential, halfway houses, sober living houses, issues like that, because they do seem very different. The communal housing, they're actually capped on the amount of parking, so it's not that much of a concern. I think that will fly through. Uh, But the rest of it is going to be harder to pull because most people don't want halfway houses in their neighborhood. But they have to be somewhere. And so this discussion will be ugly. I think it will pass. We counted it seven council people in favor. But this only affects three quarters of the city. Another quarter of the city is still under old zoning. And so the planning is going to have to bring them along too. Interesting. U.S. District Court Judge William Martinez issued a ruling requiring the city of Denver to give at least 48 hours notice before sweeping an average-sized homeless encampment and seven days notice for larger ones. In the order, Judge Martinez stated that it seemed the city was executing the sweeps with no warning in order to avoid protest. The city immediately filed an appeal claiming the order limits its ability to address public health issues. Joy, we start with you on this one. What did you think of Judge Martinez's point that uh, it seems that the city of Denver is trying to avoid protests? Yeah, well, you know, this is one of those questions I agree with everybody involved. Everybody has a point. You know, on one hand, it only seems fair if you're going to come and take people's stuff, you give them a chance to move on. But on the other hand, we live in politically dramatic times and concerns about riots and public safety. We can't take that for granted anymore. We all saw what happened on January 6th, but we don't have to go to D.C. to to see that. You know, I was down in Civic Center Park in late 2011, early 2012, and the cops showed up to get rid of a bunch of homeless people. You know, and they came down the hill like the Mongol army in riot gear, and the homeless people started setting fire to their own stuff with lighter fluid and a lit pizza box. And then just chaos reigned. You know, and I don't think anybody who was there, myself included, wants to be there again. But, you know, unfortunately, this is what democracy looks like, and democracy ain't pretty. John, what impact do you think this uh, uh, decision will make, at least until if it is, a, if, if it is not appealed? Um, what impact do you think this decision will have on Denver and future sweeps of, of homeless encampments? The bottom line of the decision is it puts the onus back on the mayor's office. But we have to remember that the context of this conversation should always start with the idea back in 2019, more than 80% of Denver residents voted to uphold the city's urban camping ban. Now, that came with a promise from Mary Hancock's office to do better. Uh, We haven't quite seen that come to fruition yet, uh, many people feel. And so the big picture is, you know, if Mayor Hancock doesn't get this issue under control with this new order and find a new way forward, you know, that could really color the narrative of of his term. He's got two years left, and this is certainly going to be one of the issues that will define those two years. Patty, what struck me is that the fact that the decision broke down between size of encampments points that there's a, a bigger problem here. I mean, it, it, that, uh, that, that seems to draw out that this is a, far from over. What do you think? Well, it's definitely far from over because the class action suit is continuing. This was just a ruling on part of the preliminary injunction motion. 
So the class action suit was filed specifically about sweeps during a time of COVID, during a time of a pandemic when the CDC says you should not sweep encampments if there, unless there are no options because it could spread COVID. So that's different than people voting against urban, um, urban camping. That was pre-coronavirus. So you do have other dilemmas now. But on this part of the motion, I have to say two days notice for public health, if things are bad, you're going to know you can probably wait two days. But the city did, they, and seven days is definitely bad. I think the city was much more concerned. Any advance notice would get the protesters out. That makes their job harder. But on the other hand, protesters, as we've seen, have a right to get out and peacefully protest. So this is not the last we've seen of it. And we're going to see sweeps again. You drive around here and you see encampments all the time. David, uh, legally where this decision is at in the appeals, is there a long process to wait for that we should be aware of, or is, is it closer to being a final decision than we think? No, because even if, regardless of what happens on the appeal, then you're going to go back to court eventually for, for a trial. Uh, but the, the Tenth Circuit, if it chooses, could step in quickly and either affirm the uh, injunction or preliminary injunction or, or modify it. It's based on the fact that, the, as Judge Martinez, I think, accurately said, you know, even homeless, homeless people, just like everybody else, have property rights. Uh, and if you just come in and, and take everybody's property without notice, so they've maybe got some time to pick up their property and go someplace else, that seems to be a violation of procedural due process. On the other hand, 48 hours and 72 hours and seven days uh, seem like an excessively long time to, uh, for that notice. Tensions are high for Republicans in El Paso County. An initial agenda for Saturday's Republican Party meeting listed United American Defense Force as security. However, John Teagan, the founder of UADF, said his organization is not involved with Saturday's meeting. Current party chair Vicki Tonkins is up for re-election, and opponents accuse her of using this as an intimidation tactic. Uh, John, uh, there has been uh, drama through uh, all the different parts of the Republican Party, but usually we've seen that on the national side. Seeing it in El Paso County is, uh, I guess, a peek behind the curtain that I didn't expect. What did you think of what we've heard, and what do you think might happen in tomorrow's leadership meeting? Based on reporting from the past, what you see in El Paso County is a microcosm of this national turmoil within the Republican Party. You have these factions, and they're fighting for control and the future of the party. There's conflicts in Weld County that are similar, you know, super bitter personal fights going on that are getting in the way of Republicans uh, crafting a path forward. And the onus is really on the party, and we've got a party chairman's race going on right now. How can the GOP rebuild and put a vision forward for voters if they're spatting with each other all the time? This is uh, more than just El Paso County. It is a broader issue for the Colorado Republican Party. Will they be able to sing Kumbaya down the road? The answer may depend on, you know, also how, whether they can get back into office. I, I think the two are linked. Patty, El Paso County is influential when it comes to GOP politics in Colorado. It's enormous. as a, a lot of votes there. Uh, does this point to bigger problems for the state party? Well, we know the state party has a lot of problems. If they can't find some middle ground where they can start rebuilding, and they lost, what, 4,000 people? We talked about it last week. They need to get stronger in the middle. And you've got the lunatic fringe everywhere, 
right now, but certainly in El Paso County, you have plenty. Last week, I talked about Weld County going up to Wyoming, and we could trade maybe for Cheney. I don't know who we could really trade for El Paso County, and I'm not sure who'd want El Paso County. Maybe Oklahoma. There's not as natural a switch, but we'll see after tomorrow if the Joe Oltmans, who, um, who FEC United, who's also involved in this, who is being sued by Dominion and said, you know, the election was rigged. We'll see if that end of the party triumphs or if we have a little more reasonableness. David, as we look at this, is this uh, a relevant uh, dirty laundry or is this a bigger problem? Well, as uh, John Tig Tegan, one of the defenders at Benghazi and the, the founder of that uh, defense organization, said, I don't know what they're doing, but it seems the GOP is totally screwed up, um, which let's remember the fact that the El Paso County GOP is screwed up doesn't mean that El Paso County is. Uh, Tonkins, the incumbent, has been uh, stuffing party appointments, perhaps in violation of county of, of party rules. Uh, Current uh, former Secretary of State Wayne Williams and current Boulder City, uh, uh, El Paso, Colorado Springs Councilman uh, Wayne Williams says it looks like she's trying to steal the election. And in the meantime, she says, oh, vote for me because the, the establishment's trying to get me. And if you reelect me as party chair, I'll go, I'm going to go uh, do something about Dominion voting systems as if that had anything to do with, with, with her power. She's being challenged by Peggy Littleton, who's a former county commissioner currently on the State Board of Education. I've worked with her, very solid conservative. She would be a great leader for the party. Joey, uh, you're one of our experts in politics. Do you think uh, a lot of the statewide GOP officials are going to be looking with great interest on Saturday's election in El Paso County? Well, if they're not, they should be, because, you know, this may not be the GOP they want, but it's the GOP they have. And, you know, what is a party, you know, but majority of its members. And, you know, if you have a kitchen full of Italian chefs, you're going to get an Italian meal. So the party has to decide what they want to be. But, you know, I welcome Democrats and Republicans to join me as unaffiliated, you know, going down today, because until the parties get the message, they're going to stay on the path that they're on. But, you know, antics are expediency. They're not a platform. And if Republicans have to decide who they want to be and what they want to be, not just in El Paso County, but statewide and not just statewide, but nationally, you know, that's what Republicans have to decide the next two years. There's very little way to actually improve upon a Joey Bunch quotation, but I would allow for this uh, this one. A kitchen full of Italian chefs, you get an Italian meal. I'm going to go ahead and say a kitchen full of Italian chefs, you'll get a great meal. But we're saying the <laughs> same thing, Joey, so well said. It is time to get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, please start us off. Well, let's remember that the Colorado Republicans' dilemma is not new. This week we heard about Lauren Boebert's excessive, perhaps, mileage report Ten, ten years ago, when Dan Mays, remember, Dan Mays was the Republican candidate for governor, and he managed to rack up a bill that was almost twice that. So maybe this, too, will pass. David. United States Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Smollett has never had a very firm grip on reality. But recently, she's been claiming that Ted Cruz tried to have her murdered, and she was, when, in the day the Capitol was attacked, she was hiding in her office bathroom while a mob was at the door. Well, it, it turns out, actually, she was in the Cannon House office building, a separate building that was never uh, entered by anyone from from the mob. And the only people who came down the hallway uh, were the Capitol Police, just checking that everybody was okay. Joey Bunch, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Well, it's a 
target-rich environment this week, but I'm going to go with a rodent. You know, damn you, Punxsutawney Bill. We don't need this. I say we listen to Rocky Ford Ralph, the weather-predicting prairie dog, who says spring is just around the corner. I think you have a, a greater credibility in Rocky Ford. I like that, Joey. John Frank, your disgrace of the week. I'm not sure how, that we can have this conversation without bringing in the Colorado Rockies. What a mess. I can't understand what's going on and the headlines that came out of the press conference of the general manager and owner trying to explain the trade of Arenado. It only made things worse uh, from this fan's mindset, at least. It, what a mess. I really wonder what's going to happen this season. I totally agree. Uh, uh, well said there, John. Let's get to say something nice, Patty. I said something nice about the Rockies last week, so I'm being punished for that. But it's Black History Month, and if you haven't been out, come down to Five Points. There's a great new walking tour with a puzzle. You can do that. If you're not going out and about, get online. Denver Public Libraries has a series of things. There are big awards tomorrow. Just celebrate this month. David. United States Representative Diana DeGette, a member of the reality-based community, is co-sponsoring a bill with an Indiana Republican to uh, accelerate testing and, and uh, get, get more testing out there. A very sensible approach. Joey, we go to you for Say Something Nice. Well, Colorado College's State of the Rockies poll was out this week, and both Republicans and Democrats support preserving 30% of our land and water by 2030. You know, it's great to see bipartisanship anytime right now, but it's great to see it over a shared Colorado value like land and water. That gives me optimism. Here, here. John Frank, we go to you for Say Something Nice. Well, there's good news about local news. To take a, a moment of personal privilege, I suppose, uh, the launch of Axios Denver later this month that Elena and I will be doing, you know, is really going to be great for the community. We're going to elevate the best coverage that already exists. We're going to break news and we're going to have a lot of fun. So I think there's good news for the local news ecosystem here in Colorado and Denver, and we can all be thankful for that. Uh, John, I will uh, join you in that. I think, uh, it, I think as people understand, they're watching this show for the last 29 years. We can do this job because of all the great media being done. And it started back in the old days a million years ago when I was an intern just reading the Rocky and the Denver Post. But now it's the great work, whether it's new folks joining the, the, the scene like Axios Denver or the folks like at the Post or Westward or Colorado Politics or The Sun uh, or really everybody in between, uh, the folks who have like Colorado Independent which was here, and then moving on to different things. There's all these great organizations that are doing the work that we count on, and we, we thrive with that work here at Colorado Inside Out. So we're excited that there's more folks doing this great work, and uh, you and Elena, John, will be a great team. Uh, I know we'll have uh, more great folks coming back to Colorado politics. Uh, that is all the time we have here for Colorado Inside Out. So for everybody here at PBS 12, thank you so much for watching. Good night. We'll